0: Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 32. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything going to speak to the husbands now. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body. But they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church.
1: Thank you so much, Lydia, for that reading. And uh, do keep your Bibles open. We're going to be looking at Ephesians 5 this morning. Now, we are in the middle of a short series looking at relationships under Christ. It's just a short, topical series looking at how the gospel basically impacts our relationships and what God has to say about them. So we're doing it over four weeks. We started thinking about singleness a few weeks ago. Last week, we had Simon Byrne from the True Freedom Trust who was talking about same-sex attraction. This week, we're going to be thinking about marriage And then next week, we're going to be thinking about divorce. So I've got one week to tell you all about marriage. One week. And there's just so much that could be said, isn't there? There are so many aspects of marriage that we could talk about, um, so many complexities and nuances, so many questions that we have. And so I've kind of been doing a bit of head-scratching over the last few weeks, like, what, what shall I cover? What shall I focus on? Um, and trying to cover it all would kind of be like trying to get the ocean into a cup, right? It's just impossible for the time that we've got this morning. So my aims for this morning are fairly modest, and we're looking primarily at this passage in Ephesians 5. I'm not going to even talk us through properly the whole passage. We're going to be using it as reference for a few ideas. But what I want us to do this morning is think about this question: What are God's aims for marriage? What are his goals? What does he want us to achieve through it? Or what is he trying to achieve in us through our marriages? And this is quite an important question. Because we don't really understand something properly until we know what it is for. Okay? So um, I've recently been dragged into the 21st century. And I use a tablet now to do my sermons from. So it saved me loads of reams of paper Um, so I can feel good about myself um, in contributing to um, a better use of the environment. But uh, if I took my my iPad and used it to nail, um, to hammer nails into a wall, I've probably misunderstood the iPad, haven't I? Um, Because that's not what it is made for. It's not made for hammering. That's not why it's been created. In order for us to truly understand something, we we need to know what its aims are, why it's been made. And when it comes to marriage, we may have all sorts of ideas about the aims of marriage, what's it for. We pick some up from our culture, through what what we watch on television or consume on social media or from our friends and family. We look at other people's marriages, perhaps most formative, um, are our parents' marriages, if they're married. And we pick up all these ideas, and some of them are right, and some of them may not be right. So in order for us to understand properly about the aims of marriage, what's it for, we need to hear from the creator of marriage himself. We need to hear from the Lord. And that means if we are married, we get a clearer sense of what we should be working towards in our marriages. If we are not married, we get a sense of how to support those of us in the church family who are married. And if we're looking for marriage, we can get a sense of what it is that might be in store for us in future if we do get married. So what are God's aims for marriage? The first is this. Faithful love. Faithful love. Look down at verses 28 to 31 of Ephesians 5. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. But we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. I want us to think about that, those last two words, one flesh. That is a key term for understanding what marriage is in the Bible. Paul uses it here in Ephesians 5. <coughs> me. He, it's also used in Genesis, uh, Genesis 2. And, and one flesh has various layers of meaning to it. So the most obvious um, is its sexual meaning. As those great philosophers, the Spice Girls once taught us, two will become one. Um, it's a reference to the bodily union of husband and wife. But one flesh has a broader meaning beyond um, just sexual union. The married couple are one. They are a unity. They're united emotionally, financially, practically in many ways, relationally. To the extent that, I don't know if you noticed this in Ephesians 5, the Bible can talk of one spouse as being part of the other. Did you see that? Verse 8, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves wife. Himself. And so in the Bible, married couples are fused together. And as Jesus once famously said, What God has brought together, let no one separate. In other words, in order to gain this one flesh um, reality over the long haul, it takes commitment, lifelong commitment. When we get married, we narrow our options. We forsake all others, and we become joined in a permanent way to our spouse. So there we go. On one hand, one flesh means sexual intimacy. On the other hand, it means commitment, devotion, exclusivity, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. God's aim for marriage is faithful love. Faithful love. The promise of marriage is this. I am going to be with you no matter what. That's what we vow. Now this faithfulness, commitment aspect of marriage is quite hard for our society and probably for many of us in some ways to swallow. It is difficult. And it's common in our culture to see marriage, primarily in terms of our self-development, if that makes sense. So I've heard friends often say that they want a partner who is gonna make them the best version of themselves. Now there's truth to that, as we're gonna see shortly. But this is often overemphasized in our culture. And when that is seen as the primary goal of marriage, our own self-development, our self-actualization, if you will, then commitment will often be eroded because we only want to commit or stay faithful as long as our spouse is helping us level up as a person. And this is just absolutely rife throughout our culture of seeing marriage this way. Perhaps... um, a prominent example that's been kind of brought to light more recently or in the last few years is, is with the daytime TV presenter, Philip Schofield. So you know of the last few months, um, Philip Schofield has recently been disgraced because of a relationship he had with a much younger man um, who was a teenager, actually, when, when he first met him. And that's caused a lot of consternation culturally. Um, but interestingly, two years ago in 2020, Philip Schofield was hailed as a hero nationally when he came out as gay on TV, and he subsequently left his wife of 27 years, Stephanie Lowe, um, with whom he he has two daughters. And so his marriage ended, but Schofield's coming out was widely celebrated as heroic and brave. Now, let's just think about that for a second. Whether his sexual desires are for men or or for women is kind of beside the point. Um, The point is that Philip Schofield left his wife of 27 years. He broke his commitment to the marriage. And that was not seen as tragic by most of our culture. It was seen as necessary, a necessary step. Why necessary? Because his marriage was not enabling him to be his true, authentic self. And in our culture, it is wrong to let anything get in the way of us being our true, authentic selves. Which, by the way, is often constituted by our inner psychological state, our feelings, a lot of the time. And this is a general trend in our culture. Our, what you might call, self-actualization is all-important. Christopher Ash, who's a Christian leader, he wrote a book on marriage, a very helpful one, and he quotes an article that he'd read where the author said this, I have a moral obligation to divorce and seek a new mate if my original one can no longer promote my growth and self-actualization. Now, that author might be putting it a lot stronger than many of us would, but you see the point, this emphasis on our self-development. Now the problem with that is that if you understand marriage in this way, it becomes basically transactional. It's about what I can get from the marriage first of all. And so the relationship doesn't so much resemble a biblical marriage, but a consumer-vendor relationship. I can end up treating my spouse like I would a brand I might you know, really enjoy buying Nike trainers or John Lewis homeware. And I may have brand loyalty because I keep going back to those brands in order because I know that I can trust them um, and they work for me. But if they're not working for me anymore, I will go elsewhere. And a modern conception of marriage that focuses on self development. I think is dangerously close to this idea of a consumer-vendor relationship. We don't really mean for better and for worse. What we often mean is I will remain with you as long as I feel like I'm getting what I want. Or at least not too far from that statement. Now we would never understand our other family relationships in that way. We don't consider our relationship to our children like that. As long as they're, you know, meeting my self-actualization needs, I'll stay with them, but otherwise I'll cut them off. In general, we would look down on that kind of behavior towards our children. But when it comes to the relationship with our husband or our wife, that seems to be more on the table. Our spouse is in a different category somehow. But something is missing, isn't it? When we see marriage in those sorts of terms. And the Bible sees marriage very, very differently. A husband and a wife are called to love. They're called to intimacy. But they are also called to faithfulness. They say, I am with you no matter what. And why is that? Because that is what the Lord Jesus does to us as his bride, the church. Look at verse 32 absolutely foundational verse in scripture. Marriage ultimately is about Christ and the church. Jesus Christ has bound himself to you. He says to you, I'm with you no matter what. He's not going to leave when his needs aren't being met. His love is not primarily about receiving, but it's about giving, giving to us, even his own body and blood. And when he sees our failures and our weaknesses, they are not cause for him to look elsewhere. In fact, at that moment, it's as if he's all the more committed to staying with us, to working in us by his Holy Spirit so that we become who he wants us to be. This is the best kind of love there is. Now, I'm not saying that there are no grounds for divorce. We're going to talk about that next week. There are. But what is foundational to marriage is this faithfulness, this faithful love, because that reflects the best love that there is, which is found in Christ. And the Lord calls us in marriage to reflect this love by being faithful. That's one of God's aims. The second aim that God has for marriage is fruitfulness. So marriage is not just about simply loving your spouse The epitome of marriage is not simply spending hours on a Saturday afternoon gazing into each other's eyes longingly, which I know lots of you do commonly as married couples. It's not about that. Marriage actually has an outward direction, Um, it it is faced outside of the couple themselves. Married couples are to be a team, and they are to be a team that is fruitful. It's been this way since the beginning. So Genesis 1, verse 27 to 28. So God create, created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So humanity here is called to be fruitful and multiply, increase in number, It says. And we've spoken before about how all human beings are called to this task, to be fruitful and multiply. They're made in the image of God, all of us. We're called, called to build civilization, whether we are married or single. We all have a part to play in this role. But it's interesting that man, the man and the woman are the first married couple. And so in order to understand their marriage, this, this call to be fruitful and multiply is key. Is key. And their marriage is—it has an outward direction. And their marriage is to be fruitful. Now, I'm using the word fruitful in quite a broad sense, a number of ways. You can understand that. The first is by raising children. This is the most obvious and literal use uh, of the term fruitful in Genesis. Adam and Eve were to have kids, and lots of them, through their descendants, so that they would fill the earth. And and throughout the Bible, children are not seen as a curse like we sometimes see them in our culture. They are seen as a blessing. They are a gift from the Lord. And marriage is given as the foundation of family life. Sex is a procreative act that leads to children. And that is not an inconvenience. God has designed it that way. Sex is to be expressed in marriage. Sex leads to children Marriage is a context for which children can be brought into the earth. You know, we're used to the reality of contraception, aren't we? That gives us a degree of control as to whether we have children or not. And I'm not saying contraception is a bad thing. Like anything, it could be used in a healthy way or in an unhealthy way. But for most of human history, up until relatively recently, it was taken for granted that sex was procreative. God has designed marriage and sex that way. And so, generally speaking, a godly marriage is one that is open to receiving children. Now, there are wisdom calls on terms of how many and when, for example. But God has designed marriage and sex with children in mind. And not just children in general, but godly children. John Piper said it's not just that God wants more bodies on the earth, He wants believers. And so fruitfulness for Christian couples involves raising children to know Jesus and to know his gospel. So Ephesians 6 verse 4, it's addressed to fathers, but mothers um, are involved in this as well. Do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. This is a glorious thing when it happens, a glorious thing. You know, I've had a a number of conversations with people over the last few years, um, particularly students, um, who've told me that they feel like their story of becoming a Christian, their testimony, is boring. It's boring. Because, you know, they grew up in a Christian home. Perhaps they can't quite pinpoint the moment that they believed in Jesus. Um, And it kind of feels like they've not got a... Particularly valuable or dramatic or significant conversion story. And it's this idea that, like, the best stories of coming to know Jesus are the extreme ones. You know, like, I was an alcoholic arms dealer. It was whilst I was smuggling cocaine on a flight that I was sat next to a Christian who told me about Jesus. And then instantly I had this vision, and my alcohol and drug problems were solved overnight you know now stories like that do happen they do happen and that is the grace of god but listen if you're a christian because you were raised by christian parents to know and trust jesus that is exactly how god designed it to be and that is a wonderful thing would that all of our children who are downstairs have boring testimonies Christian parents are to be fruitful by raising godly children. Now, of course, as parents, we have to understand that our role is not absolute here. We cannot be the Holy Spirit for our children. We cannot save them. That is up to the Lord and his grace. All we can do is create a godly environment to the best of our ability, where our children are instructed in the ways of God. But it is God who opens the blind eyes. And so that makes us pray, doesn't it? It makes us pray. And the burden of seeing children seemingly not engaging with Jesus is hard. But there is always hope. There is always hope. The Lord doesn't just work through us. He works through all sorts of circumstances to bring people to know himself. There's always hope. The Lord saves wayward people, even those who grew up in Christian homes and then walked away from the faith. So we pray and we trust God. Now, the topic of children, I appreciate, is a very sensitive one um, for lots of reasons. Um, And there are those in the church, particularly married couples, who would love children and for different reasons um, do not have biological children. I just want to say this and, and, and be crystal clear on this. A couple who do not have biological children are not any less of a married couple, And it's not even as if they cannot in any way exercise the maternal and paternal desires and instincts that they have. God has enabled us to do that, all of us actually, married or single. And that's why I use the term fruitfulness broadly, because the second way to be fruitful is with our spiritual children, because in the church we gain family. We looked at this passage from Mark 10 a couple of Weeks ago, Jesus says this Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and so forth. In the church, we all gain children and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. And so all of us can be great mothers and fathers, even if we do not have biological children. We can be fruitful by spiritually investing in those in our church family, by showing hospitality through love, through encouraging others in the faith. God has created the church for us to have strong bonds with each other. That is his desire. We can also do this through Sharing the good news of Jesus with others who are not Christians. All of us, single and married again, can do this kingdom work. We can be fruitful and multiply in the way that we hold out the word of life to others who do not know Jesus. But just to step back a bit then. Because couples, married couples, are called to be fruitful, maybe it's worth having a a think, for those of you who are married, What opportunities has God given us? What gifts has God given us to serve in his kingdom? We often think about gifts, about what what I can do, and that's a good thing. But what can we do as couples? What are the unique gifts and opportunities that God has given you? How can you be fruitful in Jesus' service? You see, married couples do not just exist for themselves. They have an outward direction that serves others. They're to be fruitful. So, faithful love, fruitfulness, those are two of God's aims in marriage. Finally, growth. Look back down at Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 27. Paul writes this Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Do you notice Paul says here that marital love is a cleansing process. Jesus' love for his bride, the church, means that he works to make her holy. Holy. His desire is to present all of his church to himself, perfectly beautiful on the last day. No flaws, no dirt on the wedding dress, dazzling, beautiful. And of course, primarily that's in terms of our character, isn't it? Free from selfishness and ugliness with hearts that are pure and for him alone. And that he says here that human marriage is part of that same process. So marriage is used by God for our growth. Through it, bit by bit, the dirt in our souls is being dealt with and washed away. And it is our job to help those of us who are married, our spouses in that way, and it's their job to help us. Now, notice, Paul only mentions husbands loving their wives to make them holy. He doesn't say, um, wives, help make your husbands holy. But that's probably because um, a husband's role in marriage is particularly designed to reflect Christ's role. And we've talked about this um, in some recent recent sessions on manhood and womanhood. We talked about things like submission and headship. And if you haven't heard that and and, and are interested in hearing more, we've got that audio available. Um, But even though the husband has this particular role in Scripture to to help um, serve his wife so that she will become um, the woman God wants her to be, that does not mean that wives aren't to help their husbands grow either. You See, elsewhere in the New Testament, all Christians are to help all other Christians in their churches grow, help each other mature in Jesus by helping them confess sins, speaking truth into each other's lives, And so on and so forth. Hebrews tells us, let us consider how to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Now it seems highly unlikely to me that Paul meant that Christian wives would be able to do this for everyone else in their church except their husbands. That doesn't seem right or consistent with what Paul has said. So the truth is both husband and wife in a Christian marriage are to help each other grow. And so here's how it works. Each of us as Christians are on a journey to become our best selves. That is happening. We are bit by bit becoming more and more mature, which will end in us being perfect and um, without sin and blemish when Jesus comes back. God is making us more loving and gentle and brave. He's making us more delighted in Jesus day by day. And in Christian marriage, God uses each spouse to help the other in that process. Your husband or wife has been put there to help you grow, and you have been put in your marriage to help your husband or wife grow. Now, you're kind of thinking at this point, hang on a minute. Didn't you say like five minutes ago that marriage is not all about self-development? Well, I did. There are two important differences to how our culture understands marriage, In self development and how the Bible does. The first difference is this our growth and development is defined by Jesus. It's not defined by our culture or by ourselves. God has the imprint of what growth and development looks like. And often it looks very different from us acting on all our internal feelings or desires. Often it means denying ourselves and learning to be more servant hearted, more other centered. So our best self might look different to what we think. But secondly, the accent in the scriptures is on us serving the other, not primarily on them serving us. Because Christ's love is other-centered. It's all about giving rather than receiving. So yes, marriage is there for our growth. But the accent is on us seeking to serve the other in our marriage. And in that way, being like Christ who has done so much to serve us. Now, this implies something very important about marriage. You will be brought face-to-face with your spouse's failings. You just will. That's going to happen. And there will be times when that is hard to stomach. Uh, There's a non-Christian philosopher, Alan de Botton, and he wrote a, a popular article a few years ago called Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. And he argues that our modern view of marriage is built on the belief that there is a perfect someone out there for me. There is the right person who can fulfill my longings. And if I meet them and marry them, then i have done well. But the danger is marrying the wrong person. And he just says, this entire understanding of marriage is completely wrong. He says, we need to understand that every human being will frustrate, annoy, madden, and disappoint us. Every human being will do that, and we will do the same to them. It turns out that everyone is imperfect, and none of us is the right person. The problem is, though, that a lot of our issues don't really show themselves up until we're married. So, de says this, We seem normal only to those who don't know us very well. In a wiser, more self-aware society than our own, a standard question on a date would be, and how are you crazy? The problem is that before marriage, we rarely delve into our complexities. Our friends, they don't care enough to do the hard work of enlightening us. One of the privileges of being on our own is therefore the sincere impression that we are really quite easy to live with. But that bubble is burst, isn't it, when we get married? Those of us who are married will know that. In marriage, we are exposed in all our flaws and failings before our spouse, and they are exposed before us. And this can be deeply unsettling. But if what Ephesians 5 says is true, then ultimately this should be no surprise. Tim Keller's put it like this, if you don't see your partner's deep flaws and weaknesses and dependencies, you're not even in the game. God has put us there to serve our spouse and put our spouse there to help us grow. Now, again, I've said this before, I'll I'll, I'll say it again. Um, This is not a call for anyone to put up with domestic abuse or violence in their marriage. Uh, And if that is a reality for you, please speak up about it. We would love to help you. But extreme cases to the side, marriage calls us to stick with our spouses, even in all their flaws, because by doing so, we can be an implement in Jesus' hands to help the other grow. And we will grow through them. This naturally happens. Now, some of you are probably thinking, well, this all sounds very good, Jez, but you don't seem to understand my marriage. (laughs) I don't really see my partner trying to help me grow in this way. Um, In fact, we're in quite different places. And I want to keep loving them and, and, and I want to keep serving them and pointing them to Jesus, but it does feel like things don't change. And I appreciate for those in that position, it can be exhausting and sometimes scary when you think about the future. So just three things. Um, I wish you could spend more time thinking about this, but I just want to say three things as we finish. First thing is this. God doesn't just work through our marriages, but despite them. So just because your partner could be better at trying to help you grow, and we could be better at trying to help them, that doesn't mean that you or they won't grow. In fact, the Lord has a habit, doesn't he, of using hard things in our lives to refine us. That's what he does. He teaches us patience and endurance and so forth. And so if you don't have this perfect harmonious marriage where both spouses are kind of looking out for each other spiritually, that is not a barrier to God doing his work. He will use those hard things to grow you and by his grace work in your spouse as well. He works not just through us, but despite us. That is good news, isn't it? Secondly, no act of love is wasted. Sometimes it can feel exhausting trying to keep serving our spouse when we don't see changes. But the truth is, All our acts of love. None of them are futile. Galatians 6 says this. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. What Paul is saying here is this. It's not futile to do acts of love that don't seem to go anywhere. In fact, every act of love is not just shaping the other person. It's shaping us. We are becoming more of who we should be. And so your movements towards your spouse do bear fruit. They are worth something. They matter, even if it doesn't seem like it in the time. Over time, God uses it to bless us and to bless them. And even if he doesn't do anything to bless your spouse, it will bless us as we become more and more like Christ in loving to, learning to serve sacrificially. And so we change. Our character changes as we grow in love. And as we change, our marriage will change and get better. Let's not be weary in doing good. Every act of love matters. And finally... Remember who your true spouse is. As we've seen, marriage is only a pointer to the truest marriage relationship that every believer has, which is the one with Jesus Christ. And it is from Jesus that we can receive perfect love, unfailing love, the care and concern that we desire. He is the one who loves us He says this, look, even if your marriage is a complete mess, I love you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to stay with you, and I will help you endure through this time. And I'm going to work hard so that you become more holy and beautiful, and you will gain an eternal life. Trust me. That's what he says. And as we understand that the love and the grace that Jesus has shown us The stability of that will empower us to love in our marriages, even when it's hard. Marriage is a pointer to the gospel, and we already have the perfect marriage in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we're very conscious that marriage is a great gift from you, and yet it has its complexities. All manner of joys and sorrows come with marriage. And Lord, we we need your help. We need your help to endure them, to live in a way that is godly, to be patient. Father, for those of us who are are not married, I pray that um, as we think about what your scriptures say about marriage, we would be better placed to help serve our married friends and to know what to expect should we get married ourselves. And Lord, we pray that for all of us in this room, we would see the Lord Jesus as the great bridegroom, the one in whom perfect love is found, and that we would be blessed through him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to sing now, so let's stand.
0: I'll hand over to Adie and Hannah.